0: Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons, where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord.
1: Those of you joining us online, we're glad to have you. Those of you in the Cross Point Center, I had a couple of minutes to spend with you over there as you began your service. So exciting to see all the folks who are filling in the seats there. And thank you for your commitment to joining us week in and week out, bringing your friends, your family there to the Cross Point Center. And those of you who are live, glad to have you here. If you're a first time guest, my name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor here at Scotts Hill, and we are happy to have you join us today. This past- Last week, our pastors had the opportunity, along with our wives, to travel to Indianapolis to go to the Gospel Coalition conference. That was there. We left Sunday afternoon, right after church. We got back Wednesday night at midnight, and uh, so it was a long week, a lot of information, trying to digest everything we learned. But thank you for giving us the opportunity to go and to learn and to be together and to fellowship together. We're excited about the things that God has taught us. Several so years ago. I read a story about this pastor in a small country church who went to visit a family who were farmers. They had the typical farm that you would imagine with the barn out in the back and the chickens and the goats and the cows and the horses and the pigs and all of those things. Well, the pastor was sitting in the living room, and he was kind of tucked away in a little section, visiting with the mom and the dad, And while he was talking to them, this little boy just burst right into the room, not even knowing the pastor was there. And he came into the room with a big rat in his hand. And as he came in, he said, Dad, look, I killed this rat. He was over there by the barn, and while he was crawling around, I saw him. And I went over there, and I kicked him in the side and kicked him in the side. And then I picked up a two-by-four, and I started beating him over the head, beating him over the head. And finally, I picked him up by the tail, and I slung him against the side of the barn about five times. And about that time, he saw the pastor. And without breaking his monologue, he straightened up, and he said, And then the Lord called him home. You know what's amazing to me is how we can spiritualize some of the most trivial things in our lives and how we can take those things and make ourselves look better, better than we really are. And it's like this this story I read this week about this pastor and his wife who were visiting a family. And while they got there in the kitchen, the wife was drinking a cup of water, talking to the lady, and she noticed on the refrigerator was a Post-it note. And on the Post-it note, it said this. It said, Friday night, pastor and mrs. for dinner. Dust all the Bibles. (laughs) And you know, we all have a tendency, don't we, if we're honest, to make ourselves look a lot more spiritually deep than we are. We want to pass ourselves off many times as being a lot more spiritual or maybe even more mature than we find ourselves to really be. And then sometimes what we find in the life of the church, there are those individuals who want to pass off just this external veneer of Christianity without having any transformation of the heart and the soul. We've been studying the book of Romans for the last several weeks, and we're in chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. So if you have your Bibles with you or your devices, turn to Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. As you're turning there, I want to give you a quick review of where we've been. The apostle Paul begins in verses one through 17 of giving us an incredible testimony of how the gospel had transformed him from a spiritual terrorist who hated Jesus and hated God's people to a global missionary who was willing to give his life for the sake of the name of the one that he was trying to destroy. And we find at the end of that section, as he gives this testimony, he tells us that he is obligated to share the gospel. He is eager to share the gospel, and he is not ashamed of the gospel. And so he closes out that section with this incredible testimony of the incredible good news of Jesus. But instead of launching into telling us the good news, verses 18 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20... He gives us bad news, and he gives us his bad news because bad news is always the backdrop for good news, and so before he tells us the good news of the gospel, he says, I've got some bad news for you. Here's why we need the gospel, and he began by telling us that the bad news is God's judgment is on the immoral. Because of immoral lifestyles, God's wrath and his judgment is going to be poured out. We saw in verses 18 through 32 that he speaks about God's judgment on the immoral, those people who refuse to see the truth of God, who reject God as creator and Lord, and who recreate God in their own image. So God turns them over to their own passions, which is not mercy, but is wrath, and it brings them to destruction. At the end of chapter one, we are left knee deep into the judgment of God on immoral people. But he didn't stop there. In chapter two, verses one through 16, what does he do? He takes us to the next group of people who are under the judgment of God. Not only the immoral, but those moral people who are trying to get to heaven on their own goodness. He says, God's judgment is on you as well. You might point your finger at the immoral, but your goodness will never get you to heaven. Why? Because your goodness is not based upon the badness of other people. Your goodness is always measured by God's perfection. Therefore, none of us in our goodness can ever make it to heaven. And so then last week, he left us not only up to our knees in judgment, but he takes us to our waist in judgment. And today in chapter two, verses 17 to 29, here's what the apostle Paul does. He sneaks up on a third group of people. And these people are unsuspecting. And Paul sneaks up on them and he brings a picture of God's judgment on them as well. And these people are not the immoral people. They're not the moralist. These are the religious people. These are the people who have this external religiosity about them. They're they're leaning on their knowledge. They're leaning on ceremonies. They're leaning on rituals. They're leaning on their activities. And Paul sneaks in and says, listen, in your goodness, you will not make it to heaven. And in all of your religious endeavors, you will not make it to heaven as well. Now, the first group, it's easy to point out their sin, because they're immoral and they boast about it. The second group is a little bit more difficult, the moralist, but you have to help them to see that their goodness is not what brings them to heaven. But this third group is the most difficult group to convince because they're the groups who think because of their religious activity, surely God is pleased with them. These are the people who are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. That's the distance from the head to the heart. They know all the answers here, but they've never been transformed in their heart. These are the people who have been inoculated with enough Christianity that it keeps them from the real Christianity. If you know anything about inoculations, when you get inoculated, you are inoculated with a dead virus that is put into your body where your body builds an immune system to it to defeat it. And religious people are those who have been inoculated with the dead orthodoxy, just enough to keep them from the truth of the real gospel. And so the apostle Paul sneaks up on these Jewish religious people, and he begins to tell them why they themselves are under the judgment of God. Now, I want to tell you, this message today is going to create some tension in us. It's gonna create some tension and some questions in us and tension is good when it leads us to truth. And so this morning, we wanna read those verses as I read, you follow along so we get the full flow and then I'm gonna show you that there are three reasons Paul says God's judgment is on religious people. Let's begin in verse 17. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, For no one who is a Jew is one who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Challenge us in the truth of your word, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul is going to say, that God's judgment is on the religious because they have a false security in three things. And as he begins to lay this out, he helps us to understand that those who just simply have this external Christianity, all of these lists of do's and don'ts and trying to please God by their actions and their words and their deeds, but have not been transformed in the heart, become so easily deceived. And so Paul says, you cannot rest on your religiosity to get to heaven because there's a false security in that. And he gives us three reasons. Here's the first reason. The religious will face God's judgment because they have a false sense of security in their heritage. They put too much stock in their heritage and he put all the stock in the fact that they have a specific heritage. Therefore, God must receive them. In this case, he says in verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew, being a Jew to these people was the epitome of spiritual righteousness. Now, when you follow the history of Israel, then you can follow that they were known by several names through the course of their history. At one point, they were known as Hebrews. At another point, they were known as the Israelites. But after the fall of Babylon, they became known as Jews. The word Jew is derived from the name Judah, which is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they hang on to the fact that they are Jews. The name Judah means praised. And so they find their significance in being a part of the 12 tribes of Israel, being a selected group of people by God who were to give praise to God. Now here's what they forgot. Their goal as the Jewish people were to declare the name of God to the nations. Their goal was to display the kindness and the generosity and the love of the creator of the universe to everyone. But what happened was they became so prideful in their name, they became so fixated that they alone are the chosen people of God that they no longer shared the good news with the world. They held it to themselves, and they began to believe that simply because they were Jews by heritage, that salvation was transferred from their parents to them, and that would be transferred to their children. And so they began to rely on their heritage. And if you would have asked a Jew, are you going to heaven? That would have been the greatest insult you could have ever asked a Jewish person because in their mind, they're chosen people and they automatically have a ticket to paradise. Jesus comes along and in John chapter eight, he has some followers who are following along with him and he says, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders hear him. And what do they do? They respond negatively. They say, Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You're saying we're going to be set free. We're not slaves of anybody, we are sons of Abraham. And Jesus said, Do you not know that when you sin, you are a slave to sin? And your heritage is not going to mean a thing on the day of judgment. I want you to hear very carefully. We have a lot of people in our culture today who think that they're going to make it to heaven because of some spiritual heritage. They think that they're going to make it to heaven because they were raised in a Christian home. Now, let me say something. We can never underestimate the value of parents shepherding and disciplining their kids. We can never underestimate the value of teaching our kids formal truth, doctrinally, informal truth by just living life. That's very important. But none, not one of us will ever make it to heaven by salvation being transferred from parents to children. We have a lot of people living today with what we call borrowed faith. And borrowed faith is just simply the faith that has been taken from our parents rather than it becoming authentically and personally mine. Let me give you some illustrations. I ask people a lot of times, and I'll say, hey, what makes you think that you're going to make it to heaven? Let me give you some of the most common responses. Well, I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised in a... My mom and dad were great Christians. We were taught all our lives. Being raised in a Christian home will not give you a standing before God. Let me remind you, Satan was raised in heaven. Being raised in a Christian home does not secure eternal salvation. Here's a second one. I've always believed in Jesus. I grew up in a home, went to Sunday school, from nursery all the way to college, young adults. I've always believed that Jesus is the son of God. Yeah, you know what I call that? Demonic faith. When you look at um, 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 James, he says that the demons believe and shudder. Just believing and having a head knowledge does not assure your salvation. Here's the third thing. I love this one. I come from a long line of Baptists. <laughs> my great-granddaddy was a Baptist. My great-grandfather great-grand- my was a preacher. My dad was a preacher, a Baptist preacher. I come from a long line of Baptists. Surely that has some weight to it. You know that there are a lot of infamous infamous and notorious people who came from Baptist churches? You ever heard of Frank and Jesse James? Their dad was a Baptist pastor. Jesse James sang in a choir. Frank taught Sunday school in their church. And between the two of them, they're responsible for murdering 24 men. Now, to the credit of that church, they did something really bold. The elders went and met with Jesse James and said, listen, your lifestyle's not consistent with the scripture. We're gonna remove you from the rose. And he said, okay, I think that's a good idea. And they did. But let me tell you, none of these things, and i want to tell you, on the day that you stand before the Lord Jesus, you will give an account, not for the faith of your parents, not for the faith of your grandparents, but for yours. Because God does not have stepchildren. God does not have grandchildren. He only has sons and daughters who have an authentic, Personal faith in Jesus Christ and that alone is what's gonna carry you into the presence of Almighty God. I gotta say something about our ministries here. Our family ministry um, um, and our children's ministry and the leadership of Ryan Lambert One of the things that we are working hard with all of our children is to present the gospel in a clear and a concise way. That our goal is that when children leave that, they will understand that they need an authentic personal faith in Jesus. We carry that to our student ministry under Tucker Kelly and his team. And what do they do? We're teaching the gospel regularly and that they have an authentic personal faith in Jesus Christ. And then we carry that to our adult ministry because not one of us in this room will ever get to heaven simply because of the heritage of those who've come behind us. It's your personal faith. And the religious person is hoping that because of the religious activity in his or her life, God would be pleased. But you will find yourself under the judgment of a holy God. Now, Paul has made the Jews mad by saying that. But he's about to get them even madder. Because here's the second thing he says. Not only will they face God's judgment because they have a false security in their heritage, but the religious will face God's judgment because they have a false security in their knowledge. In their knowledge. These Jews were very knowledgeable of the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law. From childhood, they would have memorized incredibly large portions of Scripture. They would have known all the writings in the history of Israel. They would have known the wisdom books of Proverbs and Psalms and Job and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. They would have known the prophets. In other words, they would have known the entire Old Testament. And they were very knowledgeable at it. But because of their religious knowledge, they are condemned on four areas. And Paul tells us why they're condemned. Number one, because of what they learned about the law. We see that he says you're condemned because of what you learned, verses 17 and 18. And you rely on the law and you boast in God and you know his will and you approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. He does not mean this as a commendation. He means this as an indictment. He says you're gonna be judged because of what you learned about the law. What happened is they knew the law, they knew the word of God, but there was no application of the word of God in their life. In fact, they had grown to the place where the Pharisees were saying it's more significant to know the law because that will please God, or to possess the law, to have the scrolls, or to be keepers of the law, because God has given it to you. But what they were not doing was anything beyond just simply head knowledge of the law of God. And what happens when they began to know all of that, they knew their scriptures, they can memorize them, they can quote large sections of them, but it never did anything to transform their hearts. Now, let me just say this. You might love your Bible. You might love the word of God. You might like the Bible that you have. Maybe it's got your name on it. Maybe it's got the little gold edges on it. Maybe it's a study Bible. And you go into the back and it's really thick and heavy. So you carry it. And they used to call them an exhaustive concordance where that's because you're tired after carrying this thing around. And you can say, God. You know, you can sound real spiritual. And you can know the word of God. But I want to tell you, having a Bible on the day of judgment is not going to get you to heaven. Loving your Bible is not going to get you to heaven. Having knowledge of scripture is not going to guarantee your salvation. Being able to quote large portions and just have this sense of a knowledge of the word of God is not going to do anything for you when you stand before God one day. And the religious people love to quote the Bible. They love to say all the things that they know. And let me tell you, God's not going to ask you how many Bibles you had. God's not going to ask you how marked up was your Bible. God's not going to ask you, well, did you use that highlighter color code system where you highlight different promises and things in different... No. It's not going to have to do with your knowledge. And Paul tells the Jews that it is a dangerous thing for you to just rely on your knowledge of Scripture... When you stand before Almighty God, they will be judged by their knowledge. But not only what they learned about the law, but secondly, what they taught about the law. Now it's getting worse because here's what he says. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law embodiment of knowledge and truth. He's saying that they boast on the fact that, oh man, they considered themselves to be a a light to the blind, a guide to the blind, those who don't know where to go, a light to those who are walking in darkness, uh, an instructor of those who are immature, and then lastly, a teacher of children. Now, he's saying this. He's saying that what you teach is very significant, and they will be judged because of what they taught. Here's the problem. They did not teach them the principles of God's truths. Instead, what these religious leaders began to teach were all of these side notes and they avoided the truth of God's grace and mercy and life by faith. Let will give you an illustration. The Ten Commandments were given for us. And the Ten Commandments are God's gift to all of us. And the Ten Commandments do three things. The first thing is they're guardrails. They protect us from going into dangerous situations The Ten Commandments are not only a guardrail, but they're a map. They're showing us the direction we need to go. And also, the Ten Commandments are a mirror. They begin to show in our own hearts how far we missed the mark. But what these religious leaders did was they built 613 pickets around these Ten Commandments. They created 613 laws and rules and regulations, and rather than having the people focus on the truth of God's word and it being a guardrail and a map and a mirror, it became so burdensome that they couldn't keep them. They had 39 regulations around the Sabbath. 39. And some of those regulations where you can only walk 1,500 feet every day be um, between possessions. You can't leave your possessions more than 1,500 feet or you break the Sabbath. You cannot create a fire because you break the Sabbath. You know today in Israel, when we go there on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, that they have a special elevator for the Jews because if they push a button, it is creating electricity and creating a fire. And so they cannot push a button in the elevator. And if you get in that Sabbath elevator, it stops at every single floor automatically. No Gentile wants to be in that elevator. (laughs) But what happens is there's so much um, distraction that they never teach the truth. Let me tell you about religious people. They always move away from the basic tenets of the gospel and they always wanna talk about these obscure things, these kind of controversial things. Oh, did you hear about this? Have you learned this? What about this? And it keeps people away from the truth. And he says, not only what you've learned, but it's what you taught. Here's the third thing, why they judge? Because of what they did in relation to the law. What did they do in relation to the law? He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Basically, what he's saying is this, you don't live the law. Oh, you have great orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is teaching truth. But the problem is you don't have orthopraxy. You're not living the truth. And what you are is a hypocrite. You're telling people to do all of these things, but you yourself don't even have the power to do them. You never preach the gospel to yourself. You're always about preaching it to everyone else. And he says that you you tell people not to commit adultery. But what about in your own heart? You tell people not to steal, but there are things that you take. You tell people that that you abhor idols, but you rob temples. You might say, what in the world does that mean? That means this, that the Jews had a practice back in those days, that when they came across a temple filled with idols, they abhorred it so much that they would ransack the, the temple. They would take the idols, but they would melt the gold and the silver down and prosper from the worship of false things. A lot of times today, religious people do the same thing. Oh, they're all about pointing the finger at somebody else and telling you what you need to do, but they don't do it themselves. They say, oh, you can't commit adultery, but they have no problem watching television shows or listening to music that glorifies that. They they say you can't steal, but they have no problem taking things from the office and bringing them home and live contrary lives. Oh, you shouldn't lie. They have no problem taking their kids to an all-you-can-eat buffet and lie about their kids' age so they can eat for free even though they're 40. (laughs) And then robbing idols, what does that mean? Oh, I hate the idols of the world, but you know what? I like the materialism that comes from it. I like the fame that comes from it. I like the success that comes from it. And while I'm gonna talk bad about the idols, I am going to celebrate the prosperity that I can gain from them. And you see what happens is there's hypocrisy. Religious people are always about the faults of others, but they never preach the gospel to themselves. But then there's a fourth reason, oh, this is the worst. Not only what they learned and taught and did, but what they caused by breaking God's law. What do religious people cause? Here's the condemnation. You who boast in the law dishonor God. By breaking the law. The first thing that happens is God is dishonored. Why? We're portraying to be something we're not. We're hypocrites. We're false. We're not even living according to that, and it dishonors the heart of God. Why? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's incredibly painful, God is saying that when we lived in religiosity and not in true Christianity, or even when Christians live in hypocrisy and not true Christianity, that the world blasphemes the name of God. That means the world ridicules God. They ridicule his name. They ridicule his nature. They ridicule his power. They ridicule his ability to transform lives. Why? Because they look at the life of somebody and say, oh yeah, you say that you're a Christian, but your life is no different than mine. Why do I need what you have? I don't need it. In fact, your God is impotent. Your God is a deist. Your God doesn't even exist. Your God is something in your mind, and I do not need your God. Do you hear the serious charge that God is saying whenever we live such lives? George Barner recently did a, a, a survey, and he surveyed a thousand people who claimed to be evangelical Christians. And he asked them some difficult questions, and here's what he discovered in this. He says, according to this, Christians are just as likely to visit a pornographic website as those who are not Christians. Christians are just as likely to get drunk. Christians are just as likely to use illegal drugs or take prescription medicines not prescribed to them. They're just as likely to be willing to lie to get out of difficult situations, to have intentionally done something to get back at someone in the last 30 days and to have said an unkind thing to someone behind their back in the last 30 days. Here's the point. When people are living in religiosity, religion is a disease that makes everybody else sick except the one who has it. And when we live in religiosity, what we end up doing is we become smug. We become self-righteous. We become self-centered. We become judgmental. And we become hypocritical. Some of the worst people in the world have been religious people, people who have this external facade, but no internal transformation. And those people will be under the judgment of God. So let's go back to what Paul says. The religious will face God's judgment because they have a false security of uh, heritage Also, they have a false security of knowledge. But thirdly, they have a false security in their religious ceremonies. Now he really makes them mad. It's not just your heritage. It's not just your knowledge. But listen, you are resting in your ceremonies to make you think that you're right with God. And what does he do? He picks the one ceremony that is most significant to the Jews, and that is circumcision. And here's what he says. He says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. If you're walking according to righteousness and orthodoxy and orthopraxy, then yeah, circumcision can be meaningful for you. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Now, you might be thinking, okay, I really don't get this whole thing of circumcision. Are we going into a conversation about that this morning? Yes, because circumcision was God's sign of a covenant relationship with his people, the Jewish people. And you might think, of all reasons, why would God use circumcision as an outward sign that these people belong to him? And it's simple. Circumcision in those days was very significant because apart from circumcision, it was very easy without the medical advantages that we have today for people to have diseases and and all kinds of sickness that can flow from that. But circumcision is just simply, let me see how I can delicately say this. Circumcision is removing filth and corruption at the point of new life. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Parents, your children are going to go home and say, "What circumcision? You get to instruct them beyond that. And here's what Paul is saying. Circumcision is an outward symbol of what God wants to do to the heart. Circumcision is to be the removal of corruption and impurities from your life at the point of new life. And what God is saying is that those who walk in the true understanding of what circumcision is, it's not just the symbol about circumcision, it is the significance of obedience of the heart. And when God gave that to the people, they were to see that this was a constant reminder that they're living purity. They're to live in righteousness. They're to live in holiness, totally different from a depraved world at the point of the new life that they have in God. And yet what happened was the Jews shadowed it with all kinds of mysterious things. They began to teach that no circumcised Jew will ever go to hell. They began to teach that Abraham was promised by God that no circumcised man would ever be able to enter into hell. And so they began to put all the emphasis on the ceremonial. And there was no change of their heart. That's why Paul continues. He says, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written code of circumcision and, um, but break the law. He's saying that the Gentiles themselves will condemn you. Boy, that set them off. What do you mean? And then he goes on. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. What he's saying is this. He's saying that those faithful people of God are the people who are faithful inwardly, not externally. They're the faithful ones who walk in obedience, not by some ceremonial ritual where they put all of their weight and their stock into. And then he closes by saying his praise is not from man, but from God. They're saved by the spirit of God and not just the letter of the law. And their praise will come from God and not from men. He's doing a word play here. Jew means praised. He ends it with the praise as not from men, but the praise of God. Let me tell you, religious people have their own ceremonies. And we have our own in the church. Let me give you some of them. Modern day rituals and ceremonies. How about this one? Praying a prayer. I prayed that prayer when I was five years old. I came forward. I prayed for Jesus to live in my life. Has your life changed? Well, not much, but I prayed that prayer. I'm good with God. How about this one? I attend church every week. Check it off my box. God's got to be happy. I could be on a golf course. I could be hunting. I could be fishing, but no, I am in church. I am a spiritual person. I got baptized. I prayed that prayer. I came down, I got baptized, I got dunked. I almost did a cannonball myself that day. And so I got the certificate to prove it. My baptism is significant. How about partaking of the Lord's Supper? Every time the Lord's Supper's offered, I'm there, and I celebrate together. And here's the last one, serving in the church. Now let me say, all of these things are important in the life of a believer. But praying a prayer does not secure your salvation. Attending a search service, that ritual does not secure your salvation. Getting baptized does not do it. Let me tell you, one of our philosophies here as pastors is we do not do what's called spontaneous baptisms. A lot of churches do them, They'll get people together. They'll preach about baptism. They'll give everybody a T-shirt. And at the end of the message, they go and they dunk everybody and they say, wow, we baptized 25 people today. A lot of times those people are given a false security of heaven because they don't even understand what baptism is. I'm not saying in every case, but what we don't do is that because we want to make sure that there is never this false sense of security, but a clear understanding of why I need to be regenerated from the inside out. And the Lord's Supper, and all of these things. I'm just gonna tell you, these are things that many people hang on to. Now, a lot of people who are religious are missing heaven by 18 inches. They have it here, but they've never surrendered their heart. And the tension that I'm talking about that may be built today is you may be sitting here and say, well, how do I know if I'm religious or I'm really saved? How do I know if I'm just going through the motions or there has been a transformation in my heart? Here's the clear difference. The true believer is the person who has the spirit of God living in him or her. And the spirit of God is the one that brings about the conviction He is the one that brings about the change. He is the one that brings about the transformation. In the Christian life, there is there are bookends. There's justification when I come to faith in Christ. Then there's glorification at the end of my life. But in the middle of that is sanctification. And it is the grueling daily process where the Spirit of God is constantly working in me. And there are times of deep convictions. There are times where I desire to please the heart of God. There are times when I recognize my sin and my brokenness and I see my own unholiness and unworthiness. And I see that I need a... Savior, if you're living your life with this internal disposition flowing out of you from the Spirit's conviction in your life, then you can rest that you are a child of God because you've surrendered your heart, you've surrendered your life, you've surrendered your future, and every single day the reason you read the Bible is to love Jesus more. The reason you gather in worship with brothers and sisters is to exalt his name more among the people. The reason you walk in holiness and obedience is not to please the world or people around you, but to please the heart of your Savior. The reason you do all of these things and your baptism is an outward sign of something that Jesus has done internally in you. You can rest. My security is in Jesus alone. But there may be some of you here today. You've been so inoculated by the gospel that your heart has become so hardened and you're just going through the motions and you know it. And there's an emptiness and you keep trying to work and you keep trying to do something, but the one thing you've never done is just stop and recognize your own wretchedness before God and surrender your pride. Let me tell you something. Pride is the national religion of hell. And every person in hell is there because of pride. Because they want to be their own God. And maybe today God is saying to you, you don't have authentic faith. You've never personally surrendered your life. You're missing heaven by 18 inches. But today, you can surrender, admit your sin, come to understand who Jesus is, that he lived that perfect, sinless life and the only one qualified to be the sacrifice for your sins. And he died on a cross for you, taking God's wrath in your place so that you can experience the grace of God as you live for him. God's judgment is on the immoral. God's judgment is going to be on those moralists, but God's judgment is on the religious people who have the head, but no heart. I don't know where you are today. And even as I prepare this message, I know that there's gonna be tension But this is the place where you have to come to grips with if you died today, what would you stand on before God? It's either going to be Jesus and him only, or it's going to be all these things that I've done and that I do are not far from the moralist, who hope that God's a God of good and bad.
0: And my good is better than my bad. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20-21 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash nextsteps. Till next time.